Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey all, before we begin, a couple of announcements. First, Unchained has a new logo and website. You may have noticed the new podcast thumbnail in your podcast player or on YouTube. This change has been a long time coming, and I think the new redesign looks awesome. As we've done on YouTube and on the podcast platforms, we've also now retired the unconfirmed brand on the site. So now the Friday shows will also be branded Unchained. Be sure to check out the beautiful new redesign at unchainedpodcast.com. Second, my book publishes in less than two months. I've been sending it to a few early readers to get blurbs and also for ideas for NFTs. And I just wanted to share with you one early reader's reaction. This person, quote, absolutely devoured the book in two days, which is pretty crazy because I wrote a really fat book. They also said they were enthralled, their word, and that they felt the book really brought to life the various players included in it. This is someone who's been involved in the space for years, but was not right in the middle of the action, and they could not put it down. So if you're looking for a good read that's all about crypto, pre-order The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze today at bit.ly slash cryptopians. That's bit.ly slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S. The book comes out 2 22 and so you'll have it just in time for spring break. Again, pre-order The Cryptopians at bit.ly slash cryptopians. And now, on to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the January 4th, 2022 episode of Unchained. Happy New Year's, everyone! Buy, earn, and spend crypto on the Crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first 30 days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Today's topic is the 2022 crypto markets. Here to discuss are Larry Cermak, VP of Research at The Block, and Igor Igamberdiv, Director of Research and Data at The Block. Welcome, Larry and Igor. Hey, Laura. Great to be here again. Hey. So let's start by discussing what the state of the crypto markets was at the end of 2021. What would you say were the top line points from last year? Sure. Uh, so for 2021, um, I would say we saw crypto really reach mainstream for the first time, or at least trying to attempt to reach mainstream. We saw obviously massive upkick of institutional adoption uh, with the announcement of, of Tesla buying Bitcoin everything kicked off significantly. Like you could see it even on, on the on our research business, the interest just went like up like 100x uh, on the institutional side because uh, because with Tesla, it kind of breached people's mainstream. And then and then also it was the year of layer one networks uh, outside of Ethereum getting a lot of adoption. And then I would say last one, uh, just NFTs completely going uh, bananas and and just reaching even the normal people that normally don't care about crypto, uh, don't care about finance, don't care about changing money, but they they care about some like digital scarcity and, and they wanted to own a piece of something. And Igor, what do, what do you think? So I also like saw a lot of adoption, even in terms of uh, some like new tokens like SHIB uh, and some Flocky tokens, because a lot of people use uh, like Coinbase wallet to trade all these tokens. And uh, we also... So a lot of uh, adoption in terms of talking like people uh, and trying to like create some DAO for buying some NFTs or some like rare stuff. So yeah, we'll definitely see more adoption in the next year. So this was the first time after the most recent Bitcoin halving where we didn't see a blow off top 
near the end of the calendar year, like roughly kind of 18 months after. Why do you think we didn't see that? And I did see at least one person, Natasha Che, <laughs> tweeting that she thought we've entered the so-called super cycle in which we stop going through these crazy bull markets and then have these long bear markets afterward. And instead now the market will kind of go in a more steady fashion. What do you think? Do you agree or, or you know, what does this indicate to you? Yeah, I would say I definitely roughly agree with that idea. I think in general, there's probably going to be still some some bear markets. And, and as we saw, like crypto is still relatively correlated to what happens in macro. So there could be some bear markets, but I think uh, they're going to be much shorter um, because the space has just matured so much. Like if we compare it to something like 20, 2018 and 2019, back then, I think the market was still not 100% sure that crypto was something that was going to like stay and that was going to actually be used by people. Uh, and I think we've breached that now where, you know, there's a lot of people that use crypto. There's a lot of people that rely on crypto. And I think it's it's become obvious to retail investors and institutional investors that this is something that's going to stay. And I think the biggest difference from what we saw, you know, 2017, 2018 is that there is now not perfect correlation of all the assets in, in crypto. It, it behaves much more as a more mature asset class where you have like different subsectors like NFTs, like, like DeFi 2.0, uh, like DeFi uh, and a few other ones that behave almost like in its own cycles. Uh, and I think that by itself is, is really bullish uh, because it shows that, like I said, the crypt crypto is just more accepted and more viewed as a mature, mature asset class. And I don't think there's going to be another like two or three year bear market. And Igor, what do you think? Yeah, so I totally agree with Larry, to be honest, uh, because, yeah, in this cycle, we have a lot of uh, like narratives like NFT, like gaming all these things. Uh, and also another reason is, uh, we also saw a lot of, you know, like mainstream influence, like TikTokers, all people just, uh, trying to jump in various like cryptos. And this is a fresh money on this market. So uh, I think, yeah, that's also one of the reasons why we stay like uh, on the top. And crypto has just like become so so interesting to young people, I think like that, that, I mean, it was a little bit of a case uh, like 2017, 2018, but now it's almost like a interesting thing to do. And it, I, for a lot of people that I talk to, it's more interesting than, than like trading equities and being interested in that because this is just like much freer market. And I think that's also affecting like how people are viewing this because younger people in general are just like so much more inclined to, to be interested in this asset class. And I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. All right. So... Yeah, I, I I kind of broadly agree with you both. And for that reason, I'm super excited to see what happens in 2022, because I think it'll be kind of just like something that we really haven't seen before in crypto. You know, I think before people kind of expected the cycles to happen a certain way. And, um, you know, I think this year it will be something new and different. So at the end of 2021, you guys released this monster report on kind of all things across the whole entire sector. So I'm actually just going to now kind of go somewhat step-by-step step through the report. And so why don't we start with the first topic in the report, which was actually uh, one of the biggest shifts last year, which was the change in mining, particularly Bitcoin mining, because China banned mining in the country. So why don't we just talk a little bit about what it was that you guys were seeing in terms of the state of Bitcoin mining and um, basically what you think will happen going forward. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously the, the biggest development uh, last year was was the China ban, uh, which completely shifted dynamics. Like before Bitcoin was predominantly mined in China, I mean, even though the dominance was like slightly decreasing, it was super important. Uh, you know, all mining machines are still made in China or the vast majority. In China, there is a super cheap power as well. So it made a lot of sense. And when China stepped in, it completely changed the dynamic of like how, where mining uh, happens now. And so we've gone from, uh, I think, a little bit more than 50% in China to now zero. And, and a lot of that hash rate has moved to other countries like Kazakhstan. A lot of it has gone into the US. So now, you know, yesterday, and I think, uh, I mean, just like these days, Foundry USA, the, the US-based mining pool that only mines in the US is, is number one. Uh, which was not even close to being true uh, before this happened in China. And, you know, mining is now more uh, more common in, in Kazakhstan, uh, a little bit more in Russia as well, Malaysia. 
uh, a lot of that has shifted. And I think it, what it showed people is that despite that massive like 50% hash rate drop, it was relatively fast uh, how the hash rate relocated and it was relatively kind of painless of what ended up happening. I mean, there's obviously a bad price effect, but just in general, the hash rate has recovered in about like four or five months. Like if we look at hash rate today, it's it's it should be already a little bit higher than what it was prior to the crash. And that just shows that Bitcoin is more resilient than I think some people thought that it was all, almost like one of the things that people always brought up is that it's too reliant on China uh, in terms of mining. And, and you know, now we saw that in three or four months that can be fixed and nothing really bad ended up happening in that time. So I think it was just kind of a resilience test. Uh, and it's also probably to the benefit that a lot of lot more mining right now happens in, in the US, which is just much more pre- predictable. Uh, China was always a risk where you had no idea what they would do. So to be honest, yeah, I'm not like an expert in the sphere of Bitcoin mining, but yeah, I could like say something about mining in Russia because yeah, you know, like in Russia, we have like a lot of cheap energy, mainly because of uh, like electric stations uh, on rivers, but also we don't have uh, like any understanding of regulations uh, in the future. So this is the reason why a couple of my friends who yeah, who like uh, were miners, which uh, like rented some uh, like space, just uh, moved to Georgia mainly uh, only because of the lack of regulation right now. Uh, and also like a lot of uh, like talks uh, about regulation in Russia right now is kind of negative. So yeah, people just uh, don't know what's uh, the next move of like Russia governance. So and do you guys want to say anything also about the state of Ethereum mining, particularly after the implementation of EIP-1559? Because obviously that did have an effect on transaction fees for Ethereum miners. Yeah, what I would say, what I think it, it was the most surprising to me uh, in, in 2021 was that Ethereum miners actually end up making almost exactly the same amount of money in revenue as as Bitcoin miners. If you look at if you make the assumption that they sell after right after mining it, and, and there are two reasons for that. I mean, one is that Ethereum interest and price obviously just increased significantly more than Bitcoins. But second, also that uh, prior to EIP fifteen fifty nine, but even a little bit after that. Ethereum is, is used a lot. And because of that, people are willing to pay really high fees. So if you look at like the ratio between uh, between the, the fees and, and the total mine amount for Ethereum is obviously super, super high. For Bitcoin, it's quite low. Uh, so so that, that was the most surprising to me. But I would say just in general, you know, after EIP 1559, revenues decreased a bit. Obviously, miners make a little bit less. Uh, but just generally, you know, there's now this like expectation of, of the merge happening at some point in the future and, and Ethereum actually switching off mining. So I think miners are becoming a little bit more cautious of that. Uh, but just in general, you know, generating $15 billion uh, is, is a lot of money on, 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 a, on a yearly basis. In this year, miners uh, found a new like revenue stream is uh, MEV extraction. So yeah, I, I don't think that like right now, uh, like MEV could help uh, miners to uh, like avoid all drawbacks from EIP. Uh, yeah, but anyway, it's like additional uh, from two to I think ten percent of revenue. So hmm. okay, all right. So now let's talk about venture funding. There was just a lot of news that you guys had in your report about that. So why don't we just discuss kind of in an overview what you found in terms of the state of venture funding in 2021 and where you think we're going for 2022. And then we can talk a little bit about some of the specific trends. Yeah, absolutely. So I think like the the one really quick summary would be that venture funding overall has just increased significantly. Like when you look at the chart that we have in the report, kind of looking at the the VC funding uh, year over year, I mean, we've gone from uh, about like three or four billion to about twenty-five billion, uh, just like year over year, and and that in, in basically any chart, when you see something like that, just a complete uh, outlier, uh, it's very significant. Uh, and and I mean, no one could miss all of the announcements that we saw from VC firms over the last like three or four months, raising billions of dollars of capital, and all of that obviously ends up trickling into crypto. 
a lot of it ends up going into seed investments, uh, not too much of it into like late stage, uh, late stage opportunities. But just in general, um, you know, like two years ago, it was basically just crypto VCs and no one really interested. Like all the traditional VCs just pulled out completely. And now you have pretty much all the VC firms, like even the ones that are not really announced, they're all interested. Uh, a lot of them are our clients and they're like thinking about their strategy to enter crypto. And, and I think part of that is that it's just now like much more investable. You can make much, much more comparisons that are closer to traditional finance. They can think about DeFi in a way, how they think about equity in, in, in some worlds. Uh, they can they can make much closer comparisons. So I would say, you know, ju- just in summary, just venture funding overall exploded completely. The deal size also increased significantly. So before that, you know, it was obviously like four or five times smaller. Now it's it's not that uncommon to see like seventy to eighty million dollars in uh, in pre product valuations for some for some crypto projects, and it's just a function of so much capital being on the sidelines, so much capital for uh, you know that's competing for a fixed number of deals. And if there's a really good deal and really good company or protocol that's developing something new. It has a massive premium, and it's it's very common now to see like eighty, ninety uh, million dollars in pre-product valuation. Uh, so it's a little bit crazy, uh, but just in general, yeah, overall, just a massive explosion. One of the reasons for this uh, is uh, that right now we have some, yeah, like this uh, multi-chain world. So a lot of projects just uh, trying to launch some forks uh, from Ethereum, for example, and uh, we just love this because, for example, they didn't invest in something like Curve, for example. So for them, it's a good to invest in similar project on Solana, for example. Uh, and also like the, 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 like the second thing is, uh, with this like multi-chain world, uh, a lot of projects, uh, just something like, uh, Polkadot parachains, for example. And, uh, I think right now we just like in the start of the wave of this like parachain projects and some like Cosmos, uh, new blockchains. So yeah, we'll see in the next year. (laughs) Yeah. And speaking about the size of the deals that Larry mentioned, you know, not only has that increased, but also we've seen so many more crypto unicorns. And I just wondered, like, do you think that the market is just kind of getting a little bit too frothy because there's just so much money pouring in and they're all competing? And so is it like just kind of irrationally bumping up the valuations or what's your take on that? I I think for sure, like there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of examples I can think of where you know, for example, you know, protocols that still haven't shipped are now uh, basically trading on the secondary market, like two billion dollar valuation. That seems a little bit crazy, and yeah, now it's, there's like there's like fifty plus crypto unicorns, and it used to be just exchanges. Like two years, two or three years ago, it was basically just exchanges that were super profitable, and now you have all these other comp- companies like infrastructure. Um, you know, like, like protocol development companies. Um, and, and it's just become, um, almost like expected, right? Like when, when you see, uh, a fundraising round of a company that is generating significant amount of revenue, there's a big, uh, there's, there's a big premium on it being a crypto company and, and VC investors just in general and many investors, they kind of price this in and say, uh, you know, this will likely become a much larger industry in the next few years. So probably there should be a big premium. And even like you look at something like Coinbase, um, which has obviously gone public last year, it's still trading at like 40 or 50 billion dollars in market cap or maybe even larger, higher now. Uh, and when you make comparisons in basically all the metrics to like any other exchanges or any other, you know, FX businesses, um, the difference is like five, five X or more higher uh, than those businesses in the traditional world. So there's just a big premium on crypto in, uh, overall. I think this will probably continue being this way just because it's it, it's a very kind of um, interesting industry for people to allocate capital to. Uh, and there's not that many opportunities uh, to allocate in equity markets. And obviously, with Coinbase kind of opening the floodgates to going public, there is now an expectation for a lot of these exchanges to do the same or for these uh, infrastructure companies or even something like OpenSea, right? I mean... Uh, they're just really big, uh, really big premium on, on all those companies. Yeah, I I do wonder if it's one of those things where it's kind of like directionally correct, but then for individual bets, it won't be. So it sort of like makes sense and then also doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, so let's now maybe talk about some of the specific verticals within the venture investment space. 
just looking at the report, it looked to me like DeFi and NFTs were attracting a lot of VC money. But why don't you just talk a little bit about kind of trends within crypto in terms of what's attracting money and what you expect to continue to attract a significant proportion of investment? Yeah, I think the the most interesting opportunities for investors are always the, the ones where they see some sort of a liquid exit or where they see an opportunity to obviously make the most money. So earlier in the year 2021, it was it was DeFi and, and it probably continued until like summer or something. Then DeFi started underperforming a little bit. So then it was NFT. So there were a lot of investments into obviously something like OpenSea, Rarible, uh, investments that in some way give you exposure to the, to the NFT market. And towards the end of the year, we saw a complete shift to just like gaming companies, uh, NFT, you know, using NFTs in games uh, that has sucked out so much capital, you know, so, so that includes games, includes gaming guilds. Uh, Axie Infinity really uh, was was the role model for the play to earn games. Uh, and now you constantly see these deals funded. And you also see, again, like very traditional VC companies trying to get as much exposure as they can to these gaming uh, gaming companies and, and just using crypto in general in gaming. Because you look at something like Axie Infinity, which is a very liquid, uh, it has a very liquid governance token and it's trading much higher than like the AAA gaming studios. Their gaming studios, they're producing the, the games that are played by, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, and they're, they're trading overall, you know, that studio is trading at less than what Axie is doing. And, and it is trading in a very liquid form. So obviously that becomes, for investors, this is an opportunity where they see this is probably under monetized. So a lot of the games right now can be making orders of magnitude more money. And that's becoming very interesting now for them. What I would say just in general, like from, from the deals and, and some of the stuff that I've seen, it's it's almost embarrassing. Like look at the games that are raising $100 million valuations. And it's like click-based games that I used to play you know, in 2000, 2002. Uh, and and they're trading at billion dollar plus valuations. It's it's a little bit absurd right now, and I think that will definitely end up collapsing. Uh, but the trend will probably continue, and, and and some gaming studios will, you know, start implementing NFTs. I'm pretty sure about that. Igor, what about you? What other trends in VC investment do you see that you want to talk about? I saw a lot of interest uh, in like DeFi protocols on new L1s, uh, not only like. Uh, Forks, for example, something of Uniswap, but also some protocols uh, who try to create some, you know, like more sophisticated uh, yearn uh, opportunities using something like options uh, and so on. And uh, for sure, because of like Solana high TPS, uh, we could see even more uh, like better projects, which we couldn't see on something like Ethereum, or maybe even uh, on the rollups. To be honest, okay. What? what oh, there's, uh-huh. there's, there was also one other trend, and that was not just funding DeFi on L1s, but also funding L1s and funding L2s. There was a lot of investment also in these areas where, like, now people are almost expecting the next, you know, year of 2022 becoming the year of some finally some rollup ad- adoption. So a lot of the rollup. Uh, Rollup solutions raised a lot of money, and also a lot of DeFi solutions obviously building on these on these rollup solutions. So I think just overall L2s obviously raised also a tremendous amount of capital, and we see it in you know Matter Labs, Starkware, uh, all these development companies. Uh, they're uh, they're raising at, at really high valuations, and it's because there's an expectation of them eventually having tokens and becoming liquid. Uh, and especially after what we saw with L1s this year, you know all of them basically popping off like crazy. If some of these L2 solutions end up getting some adoption similar to L1s, you can expect a similar trend. A lot of the capital will end up going there. And I, I'm pretty convinced that, that that's going to be a trend of, of, of this year as well. Yeah. One other thing, actually, that I noticed was that crypto financial services was also a popular sector for VC funding. And by that, you know, I mean things like payments and lending. But one thing that I wondered was, you know, obviously that sector is seeing a lot of uncertainty, at least here in the U.S., due to regulatory issues. And I wondered, do you feel like that's going to affect um, funding in that space? Or, you know, are you noticing hesitation on the parts of investors there? 
I would say there's definitely a lot of hesitation in terms of lending companies, uh, but there's there's a lot of interest in companies like NIDIC that just facilitate uh, institutional investment. Uh, and that I believe we also count into financial services. So I would say overall, uh, probably, I think even like companies like BlockFi, you know, Celsius as well, uh, somewhat based in the US, they're definitely facing a lot of uncertainty. And, and the SEC has made it very clear that they don't like those businesses to be run in the US and they, they don't give it their blessing. So I think in the lending side, absolutely. Uh, a lot of that will probably end up moving uh, offshore as well. Uh, but just overall, uh, I think like financial services is a, is a very logical way forward where like you try to extract some value and, and try to facilitate a lot of the institutional capital going into crypto. So I think investment overall will probably remain similar. But yeah, in terms of lending, there's a lot of uncertainty. Let's also talk about M&A, which was at a record high. What? How do you think we're going to see that trend go in 2022? Yeah, I think, you know, it was at a record high, but we almost expected it to be even higher last year uh, with Coinbase going public and them having a lot of capital. It's still, there wasn't really uh, any single like massive acquisition that we've seen yet. There wasn't really much consolidation. And I think the reason for that was because you know, none of the companies actually struggled. Uh, a lot of the companies, when they uh, ran out of money, like for example, you know, when BlockFi had some issues with the GBTC trade, <laughs> they just did this and raised money like that within a couple of days. Because why not, right? Like uh, there, there's a lot of capital uh, in the markets. And, and because of that, there wasn't much need of consolidation because there just wasn't a lot of companies struggling last year. Uh, this can definitely change next year. Uh, but but I think in general, we'll see a trend of company going public and then trying to acquire more companies. I mean, Coinbase has done it a little bit. None of the acquisitions were you know enormous, but, but I think this will continue being a trend. Uh, and um, financial services, probably data companies will consolidate a lot. Like there, it's, you know, in data companies, you now have like probably 100 plus companies doing data and crypto. And it's a very commoditized market. Um, and I think we'll see a lot of consolidation there. But just in general, because a lot of a lot of money ends up going to tradable like token stuff, because of that we haven't seen much. And and we've seen interestingly enough like some uh, token mergers and M and A as well, like with Polygon for example being one. Uh, there are a few others that were really interesting. Uh, so I think that will also be a trend in the coming years too. Igor, did you want to add anything? Yeah, maybe. So, yeah, uh, we just saw that like acquisitions uh, between various DAO in crypto is uh, not something, not not something special because yeah, even like two days ago, I think uh, we saw uh, Rally Capital and Fair Protocol acquisition. Uh, before this, uh, we have uh, New Cipher and uh, Keep Network, and uh, even like. Uh, in the 2020, we saw a lot of projects uh, was like acquired by Iron. So I think we will see just trend on this like DAO uh, like merge and acquisition uh, in like in the current year. Yeah, I, I almost expect that to continue in a bigger way, even maybe than in the traditional startup space. Um, so in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of these trends, particularly layer one and DeFi. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first 30 days. With Crypto.com Earn, you can get industry-leading interest rates of up to 8.5% on over 40 coins, including Bitcoin, and earn up to 14% on stablecoins. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere. Enjoy up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions, and zero annual fees. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Back to my conversation with Larry and Igor. 
So we've kind of briefly touched on this competition amongst the layer ones. And I'm sure we're all aware it was <laughs> early on Binance Smart Chain, then briefly, very briefly, Cardano, and then Solana obviously was a big, was a big, you know, new layer one to emerge. And then at the end of the year, really Avalanche and maybe even Terra. So how would you guys characterize this race at the layer one level? I would say just in general, there were so many new re retail participants that wanted to try DeFi and couldn't. So even like for me, anecdotally, when when a friend comes to me and they, they want to put in, you know, a few thousand dollars, like obviously I'm not going to tell them to go use Ethereum if, if they're going to end up paying like 10% of their investment in fees. Uh, and then so so we ran into this issue where Ethereum was being used so much and was being pushed to its limits so much that it just wasn't appealing to a lot of the newcomers. Uh, that's what Binance like really capitalized on, obviously, with, with Binance Smart Chain. Uh, they were the first chain that really capitalized on EVM compatibility. So it allowed, you know, it allowed teams to basically just fork the projects that already existed on Ethereum and just make it a lot cheaper. So just in general, we we ran into this trend of like people wanting to use DeFi but being unable to because it was just they were just priced out completely, uh, and because of this, you know, when you have something like Ethereum, it's almost like the goal, right? It's almost like something that th those protocols aspire to be in terms of market cap, and all these L1 protocols they they always they have almost they promise unlimited upside. It's always like you know if everything works out well, like we're gonna have this much usage, we're gonna we're gonna be at this market cap. And that attracted a lot of people like being interested in getting exposure to these. Uh, so I, I, and I think like Solana as well uh, was, was quite notable because it was the first one that was able to bootstrap its own development ecosystem without relying on Ethereum so much. Uh, and, and that was mainly because of its kind of, you know, of SAM and FTX, uh, just, just kind of incentivizing them as much as possible, almost like guaranteeing listings if, if those projects were interesting. Uh, so just in general... There, there were so many different uh, different L1s that started getting some some adoption, and because of that, price you know, usually followed, and and people wanted to get exposure to it because there's like unlimited upside compared to something like DeFi, where uh, you already know like you can make some comparisons to, tr to traditional finance or something else, but with L1s, there really isn't a pricing metric, so no one knows what what these tokens should be trading at, and because of that, everyone's like aspiring to be Ethereum. And because of that, like I think there, it was just really an interesting sector for people to allocate capital to because what we saw after Solana, like now people are just chasing these. Like you know, basically this this week and last week, like Near is getting a lot of this attention, and it, and it keeps going from one to another to another to another, and it's like this continuous hype and 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 continuous like basically free competition of these L1s to try to get users, try to get developers, try to make it interesting for. Uh, for users to start using their chain with like incentives and stuff. So I think we'll continue seeing this, uh, but I do anticipate this morphing a little bit more into the L2s uh, in this year. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, I really uh, also was impressed by like Solana in terms of uh, like bootstrapping of developers activity, because yeah, right now we have uh, some kind of technical depth, which is uh, like EVM compatibility because uh, a lot of uh, developer and developer tools, uh, right, specifically for EVM, uh, and a lot of a lot of like DeFi primitives like Uniswap, like Balancer, like uh, some lending protocols like Compound or Aave, also right and Solidity, and you just couldn't uh, use them uh, on something like Solana or even near. So uh, this is the reason why we also saw a trend uh, for. Uh, building some kind of like EVM environment on uh, chains like Solana and Near, and Near, which is uh, yeah, which is like Neon EVM and uh, Aurora, for sure. Uh, but yeah, I really want uh, to see that uh, in the next year we go see more uh, like compatibility uh, and interoperability between various chains because uh, even with like rollups uh, right now we also need to use like some new smart contract language like Cairo, for example, for Starkware. And uh, I know that, uh, for example, Starkware uh, spent a lot of uh, effort uh, and time of creating some uh, like developer tools. But yeah, anyway, right now, yeah, is an, an issue that if you want to bootstrap uh, your blockchain, you definitely need some kind of like EVM compatibility. Yeah, well... I wondered 
you know, once Ethereum shifts to Ethereum 2.0, probably sometime in the first half of next year, how do you think that's going to affect this race or competition at layer one? And do you feel that any of these chains that kind of benefited from the high fees on Ethereum this past year will have lasting traction? Or do you feel like once they're scaling on Ethereum, then we're going to see capital flow back to Ethereum? I personally think that there will continue be, to be multi-chain opportunities. I, I think, you know, everyone says like Ethereum 2.0, maybe start off next year. I would I would challenge it a little bit. I think it's going to be much longer than that. I think what's what's going to be obviously more important in the short term is, is just the L2s and, and like scaling through rollups. I think for Ethereum 2.0, there's a lot of uncertainty and not just around timing, but also like how well will this actually end up working? How much will this fragment liquidity on these protocols? How compatible are they going to be across the board? Uh, and I think my view has changed on this significantly over the last two years because before we had basically like Neotron and like these blockchains that basically made like, the, you know, I don't want to say the dumbest, but but the, the, the kind of the easiest compromises that they could to, to get as much adoption as they could. Uh, now you see a little bit more sophistication. You see L- L1s just in general compromising in ways it, it makes sense. So Solana, for example, is making the bet that this will all have to scale on chain in order not to fragment liquidity and in order to just retain users on this one layer. Uh, and I think these like different approaches and, and these parameters that you're playing with are going to be important. Like, for example, for something like uh, games, it's it's not too important to be like as decentralized as possible. It's important that you have the ownership of the assets and it's important that you have some like regulatory arbitrage, basically. Uh, whereas for financial services, you know, I keep going back to this, but like I would not feel comfortable uh, putting like tens of millions of dollars uh, on Solana if, uh, today because you just don't have the certainty of it like being constantly constantly up. And if there if something happens during that time, and you know price moves too much, your capital can be at risk. So for that for that sense, I, I would feel much more comfortable keeping it on something as decentralized and as uh, with with the highest ups- uh, uptime f- possible, which is basically Ethereum right now. So it just to me, it always depends on like the use case that you're going for, and I think there are going to be some more use case specific chains uh, down the line. And I don't think even with like Ethereum 2.0 and even with rollups, like I think a lot of the uh, L1s obviously will end up correcting, and and the ones that that don't end up getting adoption, don't end up getting developers, will all trend to zero. Uh, but if I, but I think there will still be opportunities, and I think we will end up living in a in a multi chain world that has to cooperate with with one another. Yeah. So I also think that even with this transition from like monolithic uh, execution environment uh, to something which uh, like Vitalik, uh, like roll-up centric uh, vision, we would have uh, some like space for uh, various like blockchains and even like side chains, for example, like Ronin for Axie Infinity. So you don't need to like store all that and execute all transactions uh, in one chain anyway. So yeah, even something like, uh, personally, for sure, uh, like Cosmos vision is, uh, like much better than, for example, something like Polkadot, because you would have like blockchain for every app which you want. So if you want to like some lending protocol, you would have like lending protocol blockchain. You could like connect this blockchain from various bridges to like Ethereum to uh, other Cosmos blockchains or even to Polkadot. So yeah, you definitely don't need to like execute all transactions and uh, yeah, and all applications uh, on one blockchain. Yeah, Larry, what's your opinion about which interoperability ecosystem will uh, gain more traction? Yeah, I think just in general, I agree with Igor that the Cosmos is, is the most interesting in terms of in terms of the goal and, and, and kind of the design of the protocol where it, it, you know we've seen the adoption that, that Terra was able to get and and then the more that happens and, and the more these these apps can interoperate with with one another the more interesting it's going to be i think just in general what's what's stopping cosmos to become more talked about and become the narrative is just that they they don't have great token economics and the token is not really connected to like the performance of the apps that end up building on on cosmos and because of that a lot of the you know, there just hasn't been too much too much interest around Cosmos outside of the, the apps building on top of it, and Cosmos that doesn't benefit too much from it. But in terms of design, I totally agree with Igor. It's, it, I think it's just a, a superior design, uh, and, and, but it's just one approach. I think like that's that's kind of 
what I would want to leave people with is no one really knows what will happen. No one knows if Ethereum 2.0 will work out. No one knows if rollups will end up getting significant adoption. It's all experimenting right now and everyone's taking different approaches. And, and eventually over the long term, the best approach will end up uh, end up taking the most market share. And and I think that's that's one of the great things about this ecosystem is that, you know, maybe Tron did well over the short term, maybe EOS did okay over the short term, but over the long term, all of these solutions that don't take great approaches will trend to zero. Uh, and, and that's how it should be. Uh, it should be perfect competition for these solutions. And that will end up pushing this to be more friendly for users and will end up, you know, onboarding as many customers as, as possible. All right. And so we're going to talk about DeFi in a moment, but uh, we did touch very briefly on layer two. I don't know if you wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about where you think that's going to go, because clearly um, that space is is sort of, yeah, at the ground level and, and it's kind of up in the air how, where where things are going to go with that. Yeah, Igor will probably have more elaborate thoughts here. I, I'll just kind of summarize. So, like right now, we already have optimistic rollups in production. You have you have Arbitrum and Optimism. They've progressed quite a bit since they launched, but I would say almost everyone would say that the adoption has been completely underwhelming so far compared to like what it was hyped up to be, even what like I expected. I think Igor as well. In general, it's because you have all these like cheap alternatives that make different trade offs, uh, which normal users don't really care about that much. Like. You know, most people don't want to wait seven days for for withdrawing their tokens. Most users don't want to pay three dollars for dollar fees if they can pay a few cents on Solana, and and because of that, I think they got very little adoption so far. Uh, you know, there are solutions that are trying to tackle that. There are solutions that will make withdrawals like much faster if you pay higher fees. Uh, and also, I believe that uh, Arbitrum and Optimism will eventually do a token that will start. Uh, a massive interest. Uh, I mean, it's always what what starts all of this. Like you look at like interest in Compound or interest in Aave uh, prior to the, the the token dropping basically for Compound and then more tokens. There was almost no interest. Um, and after that, you know, you can build the incentives in a way where, for example, if people that end up bridging over or if people just end up using the the DApps on on these chains somehow get rewarded, you get some wider distribution that I think can start another wave. Uh, and then the second part of, of L2s is obviously the ZK rollups. To me, that's that's the more long-term oriented solution. I mean, there are a lot of people that disagree. A lot of people think that optimistic rollups are also the optimal solution. I personally think that like something like uh, like StarkNet and, and ZK Sync will end up being a significant part, significant narrative of, of this year. And both of them are definitely planning tokens as well. And, and I think uh, it's just a more logical and, and, and the more pragmatic uh, approach. Uh, and, and I think it will end up getting quite a bit of interest uh, this year. So yeah, uh, I also think that like optimistic rollups is only like short-term solution. Yeah, but as Larry said, uh, right now, uh, they're like already in production uh, and uh, people really use them even with this like long withdrawal time uh, because of like some new protocols like uh, Hog Exchange, uh, who helped people with uh, like instant swaps, because I think like operators of this exchange just like verify like all uh, roll up uh, transactions. But yeah, anyway, uh, like optimistic rollups is a good way only because of EVM compatibility right now. So people could just uh, reuse existing Ethereum instruments like Hardcat, uh, WebFreeJS, uh, and anything else. Uh, and uh, also they could just uh, like redeploy like Uniswap or yeah or Aave or yeah or anything. Yeah, but uh, zk rollups. Uh, are definitely like better alternative to optimistic rollups, uh, but like the main reason uh, which uh, this is like uh, I think not a good solution for like the next half a year or something is not only that they're not in production right now, but also because of like the lack of like general like EVM execution because you need to use some like new specific smart contract language uh, to do all this ZK magic. So you need like some like toolbox uh, for this contracts. You need some uh, like some framework and some uh, like basic contracts, like something like open Zeppelin contracts, uh, which we already uh, use for like 
ERC20 tokens on Ethereum. Also, like this Zekero Labs, uh, a kind of like more expensive term in terms of executions. Uh, uh, I don't think that we could see like more like decentralizations in terms of like relayers uh, who would like execute all transactions and generate all this mathematic proofs. But I don't think that we need <laughs> decentralization in these terms because anyway, uh, we have like Matt, uh, and also we have Ethereum security for uh, this transaction. So yeah, uh, I think Zekero Labs are definitely like long-term solution for scaling and not only for Ethereum. Yeah, so I agree with Igor uh, for that. And I, I think for Zekero Labs specifically, the, the lack of EVM compatibility will be something that will end up uh, basically delaying that because exactly like Igor said, there's not enough code that can be forked. And because of that, you'll have to go through the exact same process as Solana did, basically finding your own, finding new developers, incentivizing these new developers to develop there. And because of that, it will take longer. But what I think like listeners should realize is that actually there are limitations to EVM as well. So like going through your own language in, in most cases is, is the optimal solution if you're going for full scalability, but it's the more painful one. And, and Solana has seen exactly the same issue. So, so I think it will end up happening this year. It will be slower than people realize, but it will end up being the breakthrough, I believe, of, of 2022. All right. So let's now talk about DeFi. How would you say that that sector overall, like DeFi tokens, how did they perform versus Bitcoin and Ether? And then we can go into specific DeFi. So yeah, we saw, we saw uh, DeFi doing really well in Q1 and Q2 of last year. You know, Aave, uh, Compound, uh, Uniswap, all these protocols performed incredibly well in, in the first half of the year. And then we ran into a massive slump uh, in, in Q3 and Q4, where if you basically chart uh, DeFi or any sort of DeFi token over Ethereum, it's basically a straight line down. Um, and I think the main reason for that has basically been dilution of capital. So, you know, you now have multiple different L1s and they're obviously early, early stage opportunities to invest in these primitives on them. So if there's even a 5% chance that something like Solana will end up taking over Ethereum, those primitives obviously are more interesting to you if they're at much smaller valuations than something like uh, something like Uniswap or Compound on, on Ethereum. So I think we ran into that issue where capital just got diluted into other protocols and people started chasing DeFi protocols in, in, in these uh, ecosystems. And then the second issue was that just, you know, there were just new narratives, basically. We saw it a little bit with DeFi 2.0 narrative uh, and just in general with NFTs as well, where DeFi was almost like exhausted. And, it, and in my opinion, uh, it was also difficult to justify investing in it in, in super high valuations. Um, so if you see Uniswap trading at like 25 billion, you know, you're looking at like three or four X upside maximum, for, at least in my opinion. Whereas uh, if you look at other like earlier stage opportunities or different different uh, layer one ecosystems, you can justify much easier to invest in them. Uh, and because of that, I, we've just seen a, a massive slump uh, and, and narratives moving in different directions. Yeah, and I just agree with Larry, yeah. Okay, so let's, why don't we move quickly through some of these different DeFi sectors. Uh, one thing, you know, that was interesting to me is DEX volume peaked in May and hasn't really recovered. Um, what's your sense of why that is occurring? In my, I did uh, one of like research uh, about like DEX volumes, uh, and uh, I find that uh, a lot of DEX volumes are created by some kind of like arbitrage bots, uh, which uh, mainly use like SushiSwap and Uniswap version too. And also in May, we see this like ship mania with a lot of like retail uh, attention. But yeah, but after this, uh, we also saw like a uh, listing of SHIB on uh, like main uh, exchange like Coinbase and Binance. So I just think that uh, like most of this DEX volume just moved to centralized exchange because, you know, like uh, even because of uh, like Ethereum high fees, people, uh, centralized exchange are more like friendly for like uh, retail users. So I think it's definitely like one of the reasons. Yeah, I think Igor is totally right. It was like the it com completely corresponds with the Shiba mania. And initially it wasn't listed on many exchanges, then listed on FTX, Binance, and a few other larger ones that people can just could just easily go to to trade it. And obviously when when, when you're dealing with like, you know, $100 fees, 
versus just going on an exchange, uh, especially for these guys that are buying, you know, 200, 300 bucks, it just makes a lot more sense. So uh, I totally agree with you. It's just like a massive retail mania uh, on, on that side of things. And then also we keep going back to this, but a lot of that ended up moving to to, to L1s as well. Uh, so, so you know, PancakeSwap, for example, its volume has, has gone up significantly. I mean, initially it was barely competing with Uniswap, and then at some point it had larger volumes than, than Uniswap did. Uh, and a lot of that was just kind of like chasing uh, some questionable project, like some of it's like basically Ponzi based. Uh, but but just overall, I think it was it was mainly the fee issue, and like Igor mentioned, just just people moving to centralized exchanges and centralized exchanges having enough liquidity. Lending has always been a really big draw on DeFi. What trends did you see there, and where do you think that will go in twenty twenty two? I would say. In terms of DeFi, like there weren't any like trends that stood out too much. I would say just in general, you know, the the, the more these tokens are are traded and the more these tokens are interested to people, the higher the demand for for lending against them will be. And in this case, we saw exactly that. It's kind of like a lending is a very agnostic thing to, to agnostic uh, instrument to markets. It's it's not like too interesting, but it's a very interesting, very important primitive for people to have access to. Uh, in order to you know be able to borrow against these assets, uh, so in in general, like I didn't see any trends that stood out too much in terms of lending outside of some of them. Obviously, again, like moving to other loans, uh, but maybe Igor has something. So yeah, we also saw like a lot of new like DeFi uh, two point like protocols uh, use some you know like stable coins uh, like USDC, some like Frax thing. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, when I said like uh, about like these protocols, uh, I mean something like uh, OHM Forex, uh, and uh, or or something like Shiba Swap because I was kind of shocked uh, when I found that like all uh, unit tokens from Compound uh, were uh, like borrowed only for uh, some like Shiba Swap farm. So we will definitely. F- uh, see uh, in this year, uh, like more use cases for using uh, tokens from like Compound and Aave in some like new like crazy farms, uh, like yeah, like in the last year. Okay, so we're running out of time. So, what which trends in DeFi do you feel like were the most notable and are things that you're going to be looking out for in 2022? I would say from my side, obviously, you know, recently DeFi 2.0 was the most noticeable trend by far. Like Olympus DAO kind of changed how how DeFi protocols think about liquidity. And I would say in general, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago with Yearn, uh, DeFi like 1.0 protocols or whatever you want to call them, the original DeFi protocols, revamping their token economics to be just more easily easier to control so in this case you you try to decrease emissions and try to make it more compelling for people to buy i think that's going to become the new standard uh in the coming months where a lot of the earlier DeFi protocols will just revamp their token economics so it's more again so there's some reason for people to get excited by them again and and for them to actually hold them uh we started with this trend obviously with compound like just doing uh, liquidity mining. And, and because of that, you have high emissions. And, and uh, you know, it turns out that if you give people free money, they tend to sell it and they tend to use it to buy stuff in real life as well. Uh, and that obviously has negative effects on the price and investment interest in, in these assets. So I think we'll see a lot of that. I think we'll see a lot less liquidity mining, a lot less emissions. Like Uniswap kind of paved the way by, by stopping that on the, on the base layer. Like SushiSwap still does a lot of emissions. Um, so I think we'll, we'll, we'll see that stop uh, soon and, and a lot of token economics revamps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really interested in, uh, in like uh, more like protocols which create new uh, wild opportunities. Like, as I said, uh, something like with options or structured products like Ribbon, for example. Uh, because uh, this is like a new way to earn wild and not something like lending or like liquidity providing. So we will definitely see more products uh, and uh, yeah, for sure uh, on like other chains than Ethereum. All right. So one trend that I definitely want to draw out is there were just so many exploits in DeFi this year. What's your take on that? Is that just like, <laughs> something people will have to put up with? Or wh- what do you think the industry is going to do about that, if anything? Yeah, I think Igor should just talk here because that's his area <laughs> of, uh, of specialty. 
So yeah, we saw a lot of DeFi exploits, uh, but yeah, like the root cause of like most of them is just like Oracle misuse, which is like bad practice, uh, even like from something like 2018. And also right now we saw only exploits on uh, EVM chains or EVM compatible chains for sure, uh, or something like multi-chain protocols. Uh, and we uh, didn't see something uh, hacks, uh, for example, on Solana. And even like a week ago, uh, like one of the best uh, like auditor companies uh, on Solana, Neodyme, uh, just uh, found uh, some like vulnerability in one of uh, the main uh, DeFi primitive for Solana. Uh, and I think that we will definitely see hacks or exploits uh, on these new chains. But the main reason uh, why we didn't see something like this uh, in the last year is just the absence of like uh, source code, open source. Uh, because uh, competition, uh, new protocols uh, on new L1s just uh, didn't want to share their public code, uh, yeah, to like absorb like market share right now. But yeah, in terms of uh, even compatible chains, we will definitely see a lot uh, more DeFi exploit, and I think even like more sophisticated than uh, in the last year. All right. One other thing about DeFi that I wanted to bring up was in your report, you said that you felt that bifurcation of DeFi would be inevitable. And by that, what you seem to be saying was that there would be a sort of non-KYC DeFi and then a KYC DeFi for institutions. And so um, I'm just curious for your thoughts on why you see that as inevitable. Yeah, I think it's becoming like very obvious based on what, what Ave is doing, what Compound is doing. Uh, and when we talk to institutional clients, um, they're just unable to trade a lot of these uh, things on DeFi. They're just unable to touch it without proper KYC. And because of that, these protocols are missing on billions of dollars of, of potential inflows, billions of dollars of capital that they can get you know, if they slightly change their protocols. So the way I, I, I see this is that uh, Compound, Aave, even Uniswap will create products on top of these protocols that will be more friendly uh, to institutional investors overall and, and eventually will allow them to interact with it in, in, in some sort of a KYC way. And, and, and on top of that, sourcing liquidity in DeFi in general uh, and, and just giving them better yield opportunities. I mean, we, we constantly talk to institutional investors that ask us like, what's the way that, that we can actually get access to this like 8% yields that, that we normally can't get anywhere else. I mean, they're used to getting like 0.1, 0.2% on their capital. And all of a sudden they see that, you know, there's billions of dollars like earning relatively high amounts uh, in APYs. And, and that's appealing to them. But unfortunately, like because of regulations in the US, like it's it's just very difficult for them to get access to it. And because of that, Compound and Aave and, and, and Uniswap will create protocols or or maybe not even protocols, but more so like uh, just just vehicles uh, for them to use uh, in this way. Uh, but but I think like for for retail investors, this will obviously be very unappealing. All right, so let's now turn to NFTs because we're running out of time, and obviously this is going to be probably a huge trend in 2022. Something that's interesting, though, of course, is that we did see there was a spike in activity of NFT trading in August, and then volumes have really fallen. So, where do you think the market's going to go in 2022? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think we've now seen basically like two hype cycles in NFTs. I mean, one was basically around March, uh, and then. NFTs crashed by like 70 or 80%. And I, I remember thinking, okay, this is over. Like this trend was just super short. It's done. And then all of a sudden, you know, we saw like another like 10x going from there. Uh, and, and now if you look at the March period, it like barely shows on the chart because because the other one was just so much larger. And now we're seeing a similar thing, just a complete cool down. Uh, and I think just in general, I mean, it, it's there was obviously massive hype, massive hype around PFP projects, massive hype around regenerative art. Um, and, you know, people just were trading that they had massive FOMO. They saw a lot of people just making a lot of money out of nothing. Right. And that's that's always just encouraging um, a lot of interest from retail investors, too. I think my, my prediction would be that uh, PFP projects will not, you know, they will not end up making infinite amount of money anymore. There will only be a few that will be still viewed as important by people. 
Uh, I think a lot of this will end up going in the direction of just blockchain gaming overall. Uh, NFTs actually being used for a specific purpose. NFTs being used in, in financial products more. Um, and, and 101 art as well, I think, uh, is, is, is going to be cool. But ju- just overall, I mean, you know, something, the infrastructure needs to get better. Uh, I mean, we keep going back to it, but like issuing an NFT and trading NFT on Ethereum is just like completely financially unfeasible. And because of that, like almost no retail investors were like super interested. But because of that, then, you know, we saw something like Flow and NBA Top Shot, which is free to trade, like just get a ton of attention from people. So to me, there's a very clear mainstream appeal to NFTs. And I think that's going to continue being the case and it's going to continue being popular in the future, but it's going to be more refined uh, and it's going to be more focused on, I think, higher quality projects down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that like uh, non-crypto people don't really like NFTs. Uh, we just saw this, for example, like even like a month ago or something when uh, like Ubisoft, which is uh, like AAA game company, uh, launched some uh, NFT marketplace and gamers just like tried to cancel company because of this. So uh, and uh, yeah, and even and we even uh, saw this case with like uh, like Stalker Two. It's also like a game when uh, people just also uh, try to cancel a company because of plan of uh, like integrating NFTs in Triple A game. Yeah, and also uh, like all these like integrations uh, between NFTs and brands. Uh, we also see a lot of hate because. Uh, like crypto advanced people just uh, trying to use some like strategies to uh, mint uh, like uh, a lot of NFTs in one transactions and like just non-crypto people didn't even have any opportunity to mint and uh, for them I think uh, this is just like looks like a scam. So we definitely need to do something if we want to have uh, adoption uh, in like NFT sector. Yeah, that backlash is very fascinating to watch. And it's also fascinating to watch how the different brands um, handle that because some of them just cancel their plans and others kind of go forward, but quietly. And yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. And especially after the merge on Ethereum and Ethereum's proof of stake, then, you know, the kind of objection that we see from mainstream people, at least when it comes to NFTs on Ethereum, it won't exist anymore. So, you know, what will that do for adoption? Will they still hate it anyway? Or, (laughs) Um, okay, so we're definitely over time, but there's just a couple more big things I I really want to cover quickly. So obviously... Gaming has been uh, another big area of NFTs. You know, I don't know if this is like exactly the same thing, but clearly there was a lot of hype around the metaverse earlier this year. Um, So I was curious what you thought was going to happen in terms of games and and maybe uh, the metaverse too, which is sort of related. Yeah, I would say on Metaverse, like, you know, there was obviously a lot of hype and, and it all started with Facebook just changing changing his name and, and, and a lot of companies now all of a sudden interested to allocate to it. But when you actually look at like the projects that exist today, like like Decentraland or or Sand, it's it's not a very like complete solution. Like if you actually try to use it and I encourage people to try, uh, it, it's not that great, right? Like you're it's buggy, it doesn't really work. You know, it's 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 very overpriced because of the hype. Uh, it seems like we're in very early innings of that. I, I, I you know, I, I can see this trend becoming much larger in the future, but it, I, my guess would be it's like two, three years at least away from like getting any significant interest and any significant adoption. In terms of NFTs in games, I think we're probably closer to that. You know, like seeing Axie Infinity trade that high, and, and I already mentioned this, but. Just in general, it's it's appealing to gaming studios, uh, even if they're getting backlash because they just think that they can they can monetize it much better. They, they believe that a lot of their games are now under monetized. Like if you're selling a lot of money, uh, if, if you're selling a lot of lot of stuff in your games, and then have the opp- opportunity to sell it as NFTs and then collect commission on it as it gets resold as well, that will end up being very appealing to people to a point where it's going to be difficult for these companies to just say no. We're we're not going to do this for ideological reasons. Because the mispricing can be like, you know, in billions of dollars. And so I think 
we'll see a few like AAA gaming studios uh, introduce some some NFTs in games this year. I would not be surprised. But but just in general, like you know, I already mentioned this is uh, again, but the trend of like now super bad and super low quality games uh, just raising a lot of money just because they they have a token and they're similar to Axie Infinity. That trend will absolutely die, uh, and uh, hopefully it will turn to higher quality, and it will turn to games you actually want to play, and not just a click farm that you know a bunch of like people in, in China just just click like this uh, on on a bunch of phones and and get it done. It should be a little bit more interesting than that. And I you know I've yet to play a single game that that makes it interesting enough where like I want to actually spend time on it, not because I want to make money, but because I actually want to play. It. And I think that will hopefully happen. Yeah, and I just yeah totally agree with Larry because we are really so early for yeah like any mention of metaverse. So uh, there were so many other topics that we could have covered, but we're gonna leave it there because uh, these were I think all the main. I mean, there's there's really so many, but it's been so fun chatting with both of you. Where can people learn more about each of you and your work at the block? Yeah, so for me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Lawmaster. Um, you can reach out to me at Larry at theblockcrypto.com if you have some questions. Or even for people that are interested in working crypto, we're still hiring a lot, so you can definitely reach out. And uh, yeah, I, I, I lead the research team at The Block. So my Twitter handle is Frank Researcher. Uh, and I think you know that <laughs> I write about various DeFi hacks. So if you want to join to my data team and help us to create and build new data products or have any suggestions for our data dashboard, just let me know. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Appreciate it, Laura. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Larry, Igor, and The Block, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.